This is the Darcy Giroux Podcast, episode 30. Today, my guest is Gene Balfour. We're going to be talking about his new book, What to Do About Climate Change, a Libertarian Proposal. Gene Belfour, welcome to the Darcy Drill Podcast. How are things? That's great. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I just, uh, I, we, we had a wonderful snowfall last night, so I'm looking out a window here at a beautiful winter wonderland. It's gorgeous out there. Ah, very nice. Well, it's definitely winter here in Calgary also, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it uh, pretty to look at at this point. It's a lot of... <laughs> A lot of ice, a lot of ice and cold wind blowing. Um, yeah. But let me uh, let me give you a, an opportunity to introduce yourself to the listeners. Okay. Uh, well, where do I start? Um, <clears throat> I'm retired, 71 years of age, worked, uh, worked for 42 years in the computer industry, starting with IBM Canada. So I was a guy selling mainframe computers way back in the 70s. Became a professional IT recruiter for 36 years. Then I was the director of an international consulting firm where we did projects in Brazil, Mexico, the United States, Canada, and France. Um, became very interested in uh, government and how it was excessively large. That started back in 1979. I didn't realize it until recently that it was 1979 when I first started talking about how I thought governments had got to be too large. So I, I accidentally tripped over the Ontario Libertarian Party in, in 2007, that's 15 years ago. Uh, disc- I never knew who they were, so I suddenly discovered that they were singing the same tune that I'd been sing- singing for many years. So I found my ideological match, became active with the party, have since been in nine elections as a candidate, uh, six provincial, three federal for the Libertarian parties. Uh, one of them was the People's Party, actually. It wasn't all nine of them, but uh, but I was still promoting myself as a libertarian. Um, after retirement, I got involved in writing. So, in fact, it was just became a hobby for me, actually, over time. I continued to write about things that are important to me, and things that are important to me are mostly economics, politics, uh, health and fitness, because I'm a, I'm a jock. <laughs> and uh, those are the things that have been driving me. So I... I used to write on Facebook every day, and my writing skills kept getting better. Eventually, Facebook kicked me off a year ago. They wouldn't let me go back on again because I was saying things they didn't like. And so uh, I got onto Substack, and so I started writing on Substack. You, you know that platform, right? Yes. Substack? This this podcast is hosted on Substack, actually. Perfect. Okay. So I got onto Substack. I, I've probably written, I'm going to guess, 100 articles in the last year on Substack. Um, about three months ago, one of those articles uh, got big, too big, and I decided uh, to turn it into a book. So it was going to be a small ebook initially, and then eventually got bigger and bigger and bigger. And and today, um, I've got the first edition completed. That was done more than a month ago now, and I've sent it to friends and family. Um, you know, on a it's a PDF. I wasn't looking to publish it anywhere. I just want to get the ideas out there and. But the more I looked at the ideas and the more I thought about it, I decided I was going to put it on uh, on uh, Apple Books. And then I found out that Apple Books wouldn't accept me because I'm not American. I needed an American bank account and American tax ID. 
so then I went to Amazon and I've now got an account with Amazon to publish on Kindle. And um, so I've started uh, on the vice of, of Amazon. I, I started in Kindle. It's, they basically wanted me to re-edit the thing uh, in a way that would be more compatible with their particular way of doing things. So I've been doing that for, oh, I guess it's probably been two weeks, three weeks now, where I've been just going methodically through the book, which is now about 170 pages. So you sent me a copy of the book. I, I apologize. I actually haven't yep. had a chance to get all the way through it. The book is called Climate Change, a Libertarian Proposal. Is that correct? Well, it's actually longer than that. It's what to do about climate change, a okay. libertarian proposal. And the reason why I say that is because it's not specifically about climate change. What it is, it's about the issue of climate change and how the governments have dealt with it. And they've taken away our freedom of choice in terms of whether we're going to be participating in the movement or not. And so I'm basically put together a proposal which is probably the most libertarian proposal that you're going to find anywhere about how to deal with the issue of climate change um, and you know from a from a political point of view okay I mean I understand you were writing this article and it got bigger and bigger and it is a big subject and once you start digging into it there is all kinds of uh, uh, approaches you can take and, and avenues you can go down but I guess what initially inspired you to write? this article and then turn it into a book? Well, it goes way back. Um, <clears throat> after the movie, An Inconvenient Truth, uh, like everybody else, the climate change issue was on my radar. And I've always been a bit of a geek. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a digger. I'm somebody who doesn't take things at face value. I, I start going down rabbit holes. And, um, and I went down that rabbit hole and I've got a Bachelor of Science degree. Um, so I've, I've got a pretty strong background in maths and sciences and and also a background in economics, too. So I, I started looking at the whole topic um, after Inconvenient Truth. And over the years, I kept digging and digging and came to the conclusion that it's basically a con job. It's not a serious issue. It's not the kind of issue that I believe uh, requires government intervention. It's it's something that is is um, there's no proven science to prove that there is a climate change issue that's threatening the planet. So, uh, long, t long story short, I became involved with a company or an organization in Woodville, Ontario, which is about a half hour from where I live. It's just a little community. <clears throat> and at the beginning of the pandemic, um, the local church there, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, started bringing people in to talk about the problems they were having with the pandemic. And, uh, and so it started to grow. It became kind of a, kind of a drop-in center, uh, self-help center uh, community, and it started to grow rapidly, and it grew to... Uh, 700 members and it started inviting in politicians to speak about climate change the pandemic a lot of things and so it became very quickly it became an activist organization so uh, there was a lot of people in that that group that that went out to the freedom rallies they went to ottawa they spent time in ottawa with the with the trucker convoy and so so the, the longer it was going on, the more it became an activist center in this area. And I've spoken there a number of times. And so it's um, the what started to happen a little while back is that uh, a lot of the members were saying, look, we've all been talking about the problem, but we're not coming up with any really serious solutions. What we realized is that even the trucker convoy, which is unprecedented in terms of what it did, uh, it didn't change anything, you know, that that. The governments are continuing to move forward as if nothing had gone on. 
Um, so the trucker vote convoy didn't do that. They were going out to all kinds of rallies. That didn't work either. So they're realizing that everything they've been doing so far has no teeth. It's just not changing anything. Um, and so they uh, started put out a challenge and they said, we need to come up with ideas uh, that are going to be practical that we can we can work with so we can actually bring about serious change. So what can we do? And of course, by that time, I'd already been thinking about this idea, <clears throat> which I call the, 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 the Bigfoot show, which is the proposal in the book. And it was, um, and that proposal evolved in my thinking. And so I wrote the book around the Bigfoot show, which is very much a, a way to be able to take the powers away from centralized governments and put it in the hands of individuals. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the one of three proposals that I've taken uh, brought forward. The other two we could talk about later if you like. But that's really the the guts of the book is is uh, taking away all responsibility from central governments to manage an issue that's not an issue, and it's climate change. Okay, very cool. So I would kind of I have so I haven't finished reading the book. I've read uh, you know I'm going to say a quarter of it, but I I okay. would like to kind of walk through the the book itself um i always find a good way to cover some of these subjects is to just copy the format that you have in the book so this is something you commented on earlier uh where you said that uh global warming is not a threat could you expand on that yeah um they claim that there was a relationship between co2 and greenhouse gases and and uh and global temperatures. And um, then they claim that that's going to cause the world to heat up. So I studied and actually did a research science paper at University of Waterloo when I graduated. It was one of my graduating courses in my final year. So I've actually studied the, the scientific method. I've put together a research project. I conducted the entire research project myself with a few candidates, I collected the data, I applied statistics to the data, and I published a paper, or at least produced a paper, was never published in a journal. So I have a pretty good understanding of what what constitutes science and how to approach a scientific topic. So what I looked at is I looked at the premise, because every scientific research paper starts with a hypothesis. It always starts off by saying, there is something that we, there's a theory we have here, and here's the theory, and we're gonna test this theory. And, and we're going to go forward and, and, and put together a, a, a test plan uh, following the methodology. We're going to collect the data and do all that kind of stuff. And in the end, we're going to be able to show the relationship between the variables that we're interested in. So, so I went through the hypothetical exercise of saying, okay, we got two variables here. <clears throat> one is CO2. Uh, that's the main one that they talk about. And the other was global temperatures. So when you look at those two, then you got to, to actually claim that you've got scientific proof that there's a relationship, you have to test it. They've never done that. I've, I've gone to a lot of people over the years who were allegedly scientific people saying, show me a single research paper where they had gone through the exercise of measuring CO2 concentrations over all the years they claimed, and also measuring global temperatures and showing me a relationship that is a statistically proven relationship that I can hang my hat on with this whole climate change thing. And every time I did that, they basically said, oh, but the scientists claim this, and, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a global consensus about, you know, and I looked down that rabbit hole, too, and found that it was all BS. You know, their, their, their so-called consensus is so flaky, it's unbelievable. So I 
remember reading a paper on that and realizing just how they went about getting that consensus, and there's no consensus. Mm -hmm. It's just more BS. So the more I looked at it, the more I began to see it as a con job, well orchestrated by a lot of people uh, using the media, uh, using so-called scientists who are paid for by the government. They're biased. You know, if, if you're a government research scientist and you work for a liberal government and the liberal government says we have a climate change catastrophe, do you really think that you're, you're going to put your career and your salary on the line to go against the, uh, their, 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 uh, their statements, their narratives? You're not going to do that. Nobody would do that. Unless, unless you're you know really rich and you're very very brave, you know, yeah. that happened with the pandemic too. So, so anyhow, I that's what I did all these years, and I kept asking. I said, look, I'm seriously interested in seeing that relationship. You show me that relationship, I'm going to start to believe. But not a single person has ever come up with it. How has this thing been per- perpetuated by you know politicians and special interests and institutions that? I mean, every major political party has a huge plank on climate change and solutions to it. Uh, it's, you know, it's all you see in, in mainstream media all the time. How have politicians and institutions perpetuated this thing to this point where it carries so much clout? Well, they've been doing it, building it over a long period of time. But um, there was a time when we believed that we were living in a capital, capitalist economy. We no longer live in a capitalist society. That's long gone. Mm-hmm. We live in a we live in a crony society, and crony capitalism is just one form of what they call fascism. I mean, if you read the books on the history of fascism and Mussolini in in uh, in Italy, you'll know that Mussolini uh, created fascism as building a relationship between his government and between major corporations that were the biggest suppliers in the economy, and they were scratching each other's back. You know, he wanted. Mussolini wanted these governments to support his initiative, and uh, and these and these corporations wanted to have the the support of the government to make sure that they had no competition, and so it was just a, a very convenient relationship. But today, in Canada, we have crony capitalism, and we've seen all kinds of examples of, of where the the government and large corporations are in bed with each other because they have a mutual reason to be in bed with each other. Um, and then you've got crony statism, so. The people who work for the government itself have a vested interest in seeing the government uh, be sustained and continue to grow. So if you're a department manager, you want to see your department grow and you want to see your budget grow. And and the only way you're going to grow a business or a government, I should say, is is you're going to do it by taking on what what they call new responsibilities. And a responsibility is just another set of regulations or a new piece of legislation they've got to support. And so, so there became this – and then there's a third one, as I call crony socialism – and crony socialism is are the groups in society that that have allegedly they have a let's call it a moral cause like poverty for example or or even climate change you know that we're going to save we're going to save the whales I mean that that kind of thing and and so they are doing this in many cases not for the money but they're doing it because they have a, a, an ideology they want to support some idea that's really got them you know got them excited and so that's what I call crony socialism and there's all kinds of of, of small uh, interest groups and larger interest groups, uh, which they call non-government uh, NGOs, non-government organizations. And and they're very active. And we've seen all kinds of examples of those people uh, out there. Uh, they're mostly the ones who are stopping us from seeing pipelines go through in, in, uh, in Canada. You know, they're mostly, mostly these, these crony socialist organizations that are funded by rich people, you know. 
And so those are the, those are the three faces of cronyism in Canada. Nobody nobody ever talks about them, but those are the ones that we need that we're facing. We have to deal with them. And so you know that's uh, I'm trying to remember what our original question was, but but you're asking about the you're asking about the growth of government and its influence. And I think what yeah. you'll find well, what I what you, what the question was. Uh, these these politicians and these institutions are able to perpetuate this climate change hysteria. I'm just curious, in your view, how you see them being able to to do that, given that right. it is given that it is a myth and there is shaky evidence that warrants the type of hysteria we're seeing for sure. How are they able to do that? Well, to me, it's it's a matrix of relationships of mutual interests and and it's a very very complex matrix of relationships so for example um, I t i've talked a lot about labor unions in the past particularly in the government sector a labor union is a business it's not part of the government in the federal in, in the federal government or provincial government like any business their owners want to expand their business so they want to grow the size of the revenues the number of members and that sort of thing so it's their source of their living it's it's what they do to put food on the table and pay for their mortgage and they're like any other businessman. They set goals and they and they do that. So, but for them to be able to to gain make inroads into government sectors, what they do is they find the politicians that will promise them to help them with certain policies if they support them. So if I'm a labor union and I've got uh, you know five thousand members and I tell all my members, look, you better vote for Joe Blow over here because he's going to help us when he gets into office. And he's promised I've got a backroom deal. I can do this. You know. Um, and so, so the, that's one crony relationship that, that is a mutual gain relationship. They both get something out of it. So if you're a smart politician, <clears throat> you start to look for these special interest groups. I call them SIGs, you know, uh, S, uh, for special interest group. And, and you go looking for the SIGs that you think you can you can leverage to get the person wants to get elected. It's a good job and uh, he gets a great pension and he, he also gets other perks that we don't tend to see. And so he's motivated to try to find the groups in society where he can he can lobby them and they can lobby him and they can they can form the kind of support uh, that will get them elected. <clears throat> and I'll never forget, you know, Alan Small was the leader of the Ontario Libertarian Party for nearly ten years, and uh, he's not with us anymore, unfortunately. But but I remember sitting with Alan Small in two thousand and I think it was two thousand and fifteen, maybe, and. Uh, the Liberal government got elected in the province of Ontario under a lady by the name of Kathleen Wynne. Kathleen was not a very popular premier, um, and very much a socialist, big ways. And uh, we were sitting there downtown, uh, Alan and I, we were watching the returns come in. And and uh, at that time, we were hoping that the conservative guy, Tim, uh, can't think of Tim's name now, but he was the leader of the conservative party. We were hoping he was going to get elected. Um, and, and Alan looked at me, he says, shaking his head, he says, it's going to be a liberal majority. And I said, well, what makes you say that? It looks pretty good here. He said, because he was a teacher, eh? he was a high school teacher. So all of his former you know, teachers that he knew before that, they were all getting phone calls from the unions to go on out and vote for Kathleen Lynn and the Liberal Party. And he said that that was such a, such a, a deciding influence on that vote that she got a majority government. And what's, and what's crazy about it is that he explained to me this. He said, if you looked at the, the voting out turnout in that election, just around 50%, just half of all eligible voters bothered to go to the polls. And out of that 50%, she got 39% of the vote. 
So if you if you take those two numbers and, and you multiply them together, Kathleen Wynne got a majority government in the province of Ontario with 20% of the eligible vote. And he was saying to me that the labor unions, they'll get out 90% of the vote from their from their group, whereas the rest of the population might only get out you know, 45% of the vote. And so because they organized and, mo- and, and mobilized the teacher unions and all these other ones out there, that's how she won. Yeah, very interesting. I have heard I have heard similar statistics in a number of elections, and it is it is disappointing that that's what it comes down to. Um, yeah, let's get back to the climate change stuff a bit. The okay, I guess you know one thing I tend to focus on on this is that you know these it's also a big redistribution uh, scam that the government's a part of here. And it it comes at a huge economic and social cost to Canadians. Can you comment on that? Certainly can. Um, If you look at Justin Trudeau as an example, and he often will announce that he's giving money to another country. You know, he gives, uh, you know, $30 million to an African nation, for example. And he does it to legislate to support their climate change initiative. But when you start to look into where that money ends up and where it goes, it's questionable as to whether it goes anywhere towards climate change because these African African nations are not the the nations that are the problem. They don't have heavy industries. They don't have lots of cars. They're not spewing CO two left to center. They're they've got you know grasslands and forests and everything else. They're probably probably consuming more CO two than they're producing it. You know from just from their own countries natural resources. And so you got to ask yourself, well, why is a rich nation like Canada giving $30 million to an African nation that's not part of the problem? Well, uh, from what I've read, and I've heard from other sources, that the reason for it is because they're bribing the national leaders of those countries with, with Canadian money so that they will not increase their prosperity, will not increase their carbon footprint, will not put more cars on the road, more heavy industry in their backyard. That's a bribery to keep them where they are. Meanwhile, of course, it's taking money from Canadians. So, you know, they, I think a lot of what they want to do is they want to stop us from being as, as uh, having such a big footprint. And so if we can, if they can get us to drive the cars less, if they can get us to um, you know, to uh, not eat the kind of food that they want us to eat because it might reduce, uh, you know, um, greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, there's a lot of things that they're trying to do to deter us from continuing to use energy in a way that they consider to be not in, in the interests of the planet. So I guess if I'm understanding you correctly, this, like you said at the beginning, this book is about climate change, but it's actually about so much more than that, too, about, uh, you know, the problems with big government, all that sort of stuff. So tell me about the proposal in in the book. Is it geared specifically towards climate change, or is it, again, uh, a bigger issue item, like decreasing the size of government and that sort of thing? Probably a little bit of both. <laughs> okay. Um, there's a little story behind this. I ran a few years ago in an election and I got to know the green party candidate and she, um, she's a farmer in this area. She's an ardent believer that we have a crisis going on with climate change. Um, 
And so she uh, and I had discussions, and I, I gave her a copy of a book uh, called Unsettled by by uh, Stephen Coonan. Very, very good book on the topic. Uh, fairly balanced, actually. You know, he's quite good. And I wanted her to read it because I wanted her to give her a different perspective because she could only think along those lines of, of there being climate change. Um, and then I remember one discussion I had at the, at the Woodville Freedom Group with her, and she said, you know, Jean, she said, I agree with some of the things I read in that book, but she said, I really, really want to focus on the big polluters. And I said, and I said to her, well, like, what are we talking about here? She said, well, the industrial ones with the smokestacks and where they're pumping stuff out into the atmosphere. And I said, to, and she said, all you have to do is drive through Toronto and you'd see all the smog. And I said to her, you know, you, you realize that CO2 is an invisible gas. You can't see it. So therefore, it's not the smog. The smog you're looking at is not CO2. So how do you see that as a relationship? And she looked at me as if I was out of my mind because she didn't realize that was a problem. <laughs> uh, so anyhow, I, I decided, you know, I'm a libertarian in the sense that I believe in freedom of speech for everybody. So if her, her name is Angel, by the way. So if Angel believes that there's a climate change catastrophe, I'm not going to stop her from doing anything about it. If she wants to spend her time, her money, and her effort on trying to to, to you know decrease the smoke stacks of, of CO2 production, go, go to it. She's welcome to do it, you know. But at the same time, with freedom of choice, it goes both ways. And if, and if I decide that I don't think this is real, I think it's a, it's a made-up problem, it's a con job, I should be free not to pay carbon taxes, not to comply with any regulations. I should be completely free to ignore it, to have no, no involvement with the government on this matter. So she can. So that gives us two sides to the problem. One is she wants to do something. The other is I don't. I want to use my money for other things and for other priorities. So that got me thinking. And you know, um, you're probably familiar with the Dragons Den show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You ever seen it? Yeah. Yeah. And then so the so so the Bigfoot show. I'm calling it the Bigfoot show, and it's modeled after the Dragons Den. And so what it is, is that it is a show. It's a television show. There's a panel of five people. Those five people are all people with expertise in certain areas. Um, and what they will do is they'll hear the proposals that will come from private businesses, you know, that have got a smokestack problem, you know, that people have been coming up to them and saying, you're pushing out CO2, it's a problem, you know. And so what they would do is they would make a pitch. Um, these business people would, would do an assessment of how much emissions they're putting out. They would engage um, in engineering firms to tell them what they could do about it and what it might cost. Um, and then we'd go to the Bigfoot show and they would come up to the panel and, and they would say and they'd make a you know a PowerPoint presentation or whatever to say, here's my problem, here's what I've measured, here's my auditor report. Here's the proposal of three engineering firms that could help me with the problem. Here's one of them that we think is the best choice. And here's the price tag. So let's say it's $5 million. Mm -hmm. And so what they do is they listen to the proposal. And then they they go back and they they do some behind-the-scenes investigation to make sure all this is real. It's, It's not BS. And the next week they come back and say, yeah, we think it's a good idea. It's going to cost five million dollars. We're going to give you four million of it. You can, you know, put your own money in it too. And when you're finished with your project, you're coming back on the show and you're going to report to the public what exactly you got out of the money that was proposed or given to you. 
And what that would do is that would actually focus on solving a CO2 emissions problem of an actual company with an actual measured set of problems and with an actual measurable result. It's a practical solution to the problem. And, the, and everybody knows where the money goes and everybody knows it was done for a valid reason. It was properly audited and everything else. Mm-hmm. And so that would be the foundation for the show. So in the kind of people I would put on that panel, the, the, what I call the tribunal, <clears throat> I would put on somebody who's a very strong background in, in physics and ideally in the physics of, of atmospheric gases. I would put on some business people who'd started businesses before and understand how to run a business and how to, you know, to operate them. I'd put on you know, various people who have, when you look at the whole topic of climate change and the, and the parameters around it, you want to have people with different areas of expertise that when they're listening to the proposal, they can actually evaluate it, make good judgments, not just anybody off the street. These are people who have to know things. Mm-hmm. But there, can, there cannot be a single person on that tribunal that works for the government, not one. Because they're built in bias, and I'm trying to make this show as bias-free as I can, and I will. And certainly, the biggest source of bias that I see in our society today is the government itself. Right. So that's the the idea behind it. The money would be raised uh, by I call it the Climate Change Investment Fund. <clears throat> so they would every week when they're putting on the show, they would ask for donations. And if you look at organizations like Greenpeace, Greenpeace has been able to raise a ton of money over the years. And they've been able to do it because there's a lot of people out there that believe there's a problem. And if they do, let them put their money where their mouth is mm-hmm. and let the rest of us go our own way. But if they're successful and if we start to see over time an incremental improvement in the results of actual companies that received money from the Bigfoot show, that will generate increasing amount of interest because people are going to see real results, not just political you know, rhetoric. It's going to be real results. And, you, and anybody who's got any serious concern about CO2 emissions will likely start to donate just the way they, would, they were doing it with Greenpeace. And in fact, they might even donate more because when you begin to see on television publicly that there is, uh, there is actual real work being accomplished in this whole issue, then people are more likely going to give money to an organization like that than an organization like Greenpeace who really all they do basically is put their money towards lobbying the government for more for more government action. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's the whole premise of the book right there. Okay. Where did you where did you come up with the name the Bigfoot show? Well, every uh, every in- a business that's going to come to the show to ask for money, they have a Bigfoot. I mean, that's the reason why they're there. They've got too much CO2 and everybody's going to be claiming that they've got t- too much too big of a footprint in in greenhouse gases. So I'm saying, "Okay, let's if you've got a big foot in greenhouse gases, we're going to call you Bigfoot. <laughs> Plus, I can I, I can use an image of a of a Bigfoot you know, from a Yeti. <laughs> I can use that, and that, it would be a nice a nice image, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. Uh, you have a whole section in the book on uh, how Bitcoin and libertarianism and climate change uh, fit together. Can you talk about that section? Yeah. I'm a big fan of Bitcoin. I own Bitcoin myself. Um, and what I see in common between the two of them is that they're both freedom of choice platforms. So if I want to save money, I don't, I don't put savings now and anymore into a bank because there's no returns. 
And plus, I'm expecting that the money is going to be deteriorating over time because of uh, of monetary policy in this country. So why would I give my money to a commercial bank where I know all I'm going to do every year is see see me lose my money? So instead, the very best form of long-term savings that exists in the world today is Bitcoin itself. And so I put savings into Bitcoin. I know it goes up and down, but I can guarantee you that over time, Bitcoin will always beat a savings account in a bank someplace or a GISA, you know, for a government purchase, right? Um, and so I so I look at that as, as a freedom of choice platform. It's safe. It's uh, reliable. It's um, I'm a technology guy. I've been for a long time. So I, I know enough about blockchain technology and understand it enough that I understand the foundation behind it. It makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, and so I, I look at it that way. So at the same time, the Bigfoot show is also a freedom of choice platform. It's just like when I want to make investment choices, I can go to bit, I can go to all kinds of places. I can go to uh, to Bitcoin, or I can go to, or I can buy gold or whatever else. But the same thing with uh, with my money. If I if I think that climate change is a serious problem and I need to help some industrial factory reduce its CO two emissions, that's one option I have. It's a freedom of choice option. Um, and I don't know if you've ever read the entire Libertarian Party's uh, platform on the website. Do you ever read it? I, I have yes, and actually, I would like to, I would like to get into that also. Yeah, well, I was the one who wrote that platform. Mm-hmm. I'm also the one that wrote the Ontario Charter of Rights and Freedoms as well. I adapted it from the federal charter. So Mark Snow is our current leader. Uh, I'm I'm sort of the designated writer for the party. So if there's anything that's going to be written that's official, that's what I I'm good at. So they kind of get me involved in it. So I'm the one who wrote the platform for that reason. Um, and, you know, but the whole platform, it basically is, it's a freedom of choice platform, which I'm now amending. I'm basically, I'm saying it's a freedom of informed choice because we live in the digital age, the information age. And that means that we have enormous resources available to us in the way of information to inform us. We're also a relatively educated population. And so there's absolutely no reason for the politicians out there not to trust us to be able to form opinions, uh, like educated, knowledgeable opinions on things like climate change. Mm-hmm. But every time they, they create these policies, they're basically saying, uh, Mr. Belfer, you're too stupid to make these decisions, so, so we're going to make it for you, you know? Well, I don't like being called stupid, you know, and I don't like them imposing a policy on me to, to make me think I'm stupid because they, cause most of them that I've met, they're, they're about as, as intelligent as, a, as, a, as an old boot, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I... Uh, that's where I kind of where I come down with it. I I'm really all about informed choice. I I'm a big you know I dig deep into podcasts, into books, and you know I'm I'm an academic through and through, and I study things constantly. And and uh, so anybody telling me I don't know as much as Pierre as Justin Trudeau, for example, regarding climate change, I mean that's a joke, you know. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I'm glad you brought up the Ontario Libertarian Party. Um, I've been thinking a lot lately about the Ontario Charter of Rights and Freedoms, especially sure. given what we see happening here in Alberta. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of movement towards, uh, you know, some sort of sovereignty or soft secession. And, the, you know, there's still a very big movement towards full-on secession here, here in Alberta. Um, I see, and I don't know if you agree with me on this, but I see the Ontario 
Charter of Rights and Freedoms that you guys have included in the Ontario Libertarian Party platform, you know, I see it as something very similar to um, what in what Daniel Smith is trying to do with the Alberta Sovereignty Act, which is reassert um, that delineation between uh, provincial and federal jurisdiction. Absolutely true. Okay. I mean, I wrote that. I wrote that charter more than a year ago. Uh, it was largely because of Wexit, because of Alberta and Saskatchewan, and it's largely I was inspired by that. Um, I've been a big fan of direct democracy, uh, the historical version of it from Switzerland. So if you look into the Swiss Republic and look at the evolution of their societal government, they're a very decentralized government. Um, and so they have 26 cantons, so you can think of a canton is like a province. You know, we've got 10 provinces and a bunch of territories. They're all different. Every one of them is different. You know, the uh, the culture of Alberta, the economic basis of Alberta, uh, it, just about everything you can think of about Alberta is different than when you find in, say, Quebec, you know. And so it absolutely makes no sense whatsoever for me, in my mind, to have one-size-fits-all policies that come out of Ottawa for a nation as big and diverse as Canada, it just is stupid, totally stupid. So I, that's what got me going on it, because when I was talking to Mark Snow last year before the election, and I was trying to get him to push this idea. So that's when I, I went to the federal charter, and I, I took it apart, took out the things that I thought were legitimate and things that were uh, that had no value to an Ontario resident. It was all, basically, that's all designed to support the federal government. And so that's why what you saw is that. Now, since that time, the Woodville Freedom Group, like I was saying, they're trying to find really good good new ideas. Uh, Daniel Smith's Sovereignty Act was a brilliant act of politics, brilliant. And she's doing exactly what we need to do here in Ontario. She, she wrote that act. She drew a line in the sand. She's saying to Trudeau and people in Ottawa, guys, we don't approve of a lot of your policies. Some of them we do, and we'll enforce them, but the ones we don't agree with, you're on your own. You take care of it yourself. We're not touching it. You know, you just get out of our backyard. We don't want you here. I want the same thing in Ontario. I want the same thing in every single province in this country. And ideally, what I'd like to do is I'd like to see this country fragment into much smaller regions that are pretty much self-contained, just like, you know, 26 cantons in, in Switzerland, you know, uh, we have 338 electoral ridings right across this country, 338, right? In such an incredibly diverse society, I could see, you know, uh, the equivalent of, I don't know, 100 cantons in Canada, each, which is like a self-contained community with its own strengths of economics, its own language rights, whatever it is that they, they want to define for themselves, do that. But do it under an umbrella of a very small, very small uh, footprint of a, of a federal government. Because there are certain things you have to have. You have to have some kind of national protection. You have to have some to deal with other nations on trade agreements. You have to have something in place. You can't have you know, countries like the United States uh, interacting with ten, to 10 provinces to negotiate trade agreements. I mean, that kind of stuff, unfortunately, you know, maybe we'll get to that at some point, but I don't see that as being the starting point. But I do see the starting point that the reason why I'm keen on this is I'm, I'm trying to use the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the Ontario Charter, uh, to create a referendum in Ontario 
to get as many signatures as we can get from people who are pissed off at Ottawa and what they're doing to us, and to draw a line in the sand and saying, Ottawa, you signed the Paris Accord. We don't like it. And so you can hold on to the Paris Accord if you want to do what you want to do in Ottawa, but we're no longer going to enforce it here in this province. The line is drawn in the sand. You're on your own. And if you're going to have trouble with the World Economic Forum in the United Nations because you can't get the rest of Canada to sign on and be part of that, that the Paris Accord, you could have better go back to the drawing board because it, we are not going to support it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you're on your own. And, and, and by the way, Justin, as the nation of Canada begins to fragment under your failed leadership and your, your reputation in, in Canadian history it goes be, below the toilet, you know, uh, when that happens... No one's going to shed a tear over you, you know? Good luck to you. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Quebec already has something similar to, like, they have their own kind of charter of rights and freedoms already or something similar, do they not? They they, they call it a a distinct society. Mm -hmm. So they've had a distinct society for a long time. And that's just a nice term for a sovereignty act. I mean, it may not be packaged in the same way but they've got a lot of privileges like if you look at the yeah sorry gene i but i mean do they not have like a bill of rights specific to the people of quebec uh i'm not sure you may be right okay i don't know yeah Yeah. it wouldn't surprise me you know i wouldn't surprise me at all yeah yeah i could be mistaken on that too um so yeah i I guess I find it interesting too. I was having this conversation just the other day, you know, with some of my friends who are Alberta sovereigntists, and they're looking at, um, you know, Alberta secession or Western separation, and um, I tend to disagree with them on a few things. Like, you know, for me, my idea would be more like yours. Like, once Alberta separates. Um, then we start looking at, okay, now how do we delineate responsibilities from different cultures within Alberta? Because the reality is Calgary and Edmonton have very different cultures. I mean, you can see it in yeah. in the way they vote. Uh, Edmonton is very much a government town. It often votes very uh, left provincially, even though um, federally they're often, you know, voting conservative. But um, – but in Calgary is, you know, these days it's more of a, a battleground between the uh, the right wing and the left wing on these issues. But my my opinion is always like, um, Calgary's still a million and a half people. Like, why can they not have an experiment in self government in in Calgary without the influence of even the rest of the province? Do you know what I mean? Well, there's a better way to do it than making it geographic. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and today, it's it's finally available to us uh, to do what I'm about to su- suggest, and that is this. Um, everybody in this country can have freedom of choice as to whether they're going to uh, use a government-based service or not. Mm-hmm. And it, so you think of it as this way. Think of it as like if you were an employee of a major corporate corporation and you were looking at the human resources policies that they had within the organization and the benefits you might get. Today, you can pick and choose from a, a basket of, of, uh, of benefits. If you've got a family and kids, you can a certain, pick a certain basket. If, you, if you're single, you're going to pick another basket. So, 
So think of government services the same way. Think of it, it's a smorgasbord of services that you may or may not want to sign up for. And because you carry a credit card today, and lots of credit cards today, or because the federal government wanted to use a, um, a digital ID to identify whether you're vaccinated or not, we know that they know that the technology exists for us to decide whether we, we, we will accept a particular program, pro program for the government or not. So for example, if 60% of the population in Edmonton wanted to support the climate change initiative, they can use their ID to sign up and the other 30% can say, sorry, uh, I've decided not to sign up for that particular program, so I'm not paying taxes for that. I've got an, I've ha I want an exemption. Um, so I'm gonna instead, I'm gonna support the building of a local bridge instead or I'm going to support putting my kids through university, or I'm going to support, you know, paying down my mortgage because it's getting, it's starting to kill me, you know? I mean, it's freedom of, of informed choice is the, is the basic foundation of democracy. There's no getting away, getting around that as a, as a fundamental premise. And so the, the, the key thing here is that we do have the digital technology in a digital society to enable us to decide what we will accept from a government and what we will not. And, and just sign up accordingly. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that idea a lot. Um, so I, I guess kind of to, to round out the conversation, so do you see this type of, do you see the Ontario Charter of Rights and Freedoms and these types of either separation or, or secession as the, the best way to meet, you know, the challenges we're facing with uh, this climate change hysteria? Well, I do. I mean, like I said, I, as a libertarian, I, I respect everybody's choices. And, and that doesn't matter. I mean, I'm an anti-climate change person. And if you were, if you were one that was thought that the, the sky's coming down tomorrow because of CO2 emissions, God bless you. Go do it, you know. But I don't want to impose my views on you. And I don't want you to impose your views on me. That's why I'm saying that we have the ability today to allow people to exercise their choices and their rights, their freedoms. Mm -hmm. We can do it. We have a constitution in place that says we have them, but we're not enforcing them. That's why I'm saying before that a one-size-fits-all government set of policies it is nonsensical, totally, especially in this age of digital technology. It's just so nonsensical, it's unbelievable. And yet for some reason, people don't – people keep thinking – you know, they, they, they seem to think that we somehow need to have a government to, as a big brother to look out for everything. It's it's like a, I don't know, it's like a knee-jerk reaction to everything that's going on in society. The first thing to do is most people think, oh, we got to get the government involved to fix it for us. But, you know, I don't know how many government people you know, but they're not particularly special people, you know. Uh, there's nothing special about them and any, any more special about them than they are about you or any of your friends. None of them. Yeah. You know, they're just people doing a job every day. And, and it's like anybody going to a job. If you, if you work for a company long enough, you develop a certain sense of loyalty to that organization. So if I was working for the federal government for 20 years, you know, I'm and they've been paying my salaries, my benefits, I've had good work conditions. Yeah, I'm going to probably be loyal to that organization because they've been taking care of me and I've been taking care of them. And, and that's one of the reasons why I have such a problem with, with the government's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, because I know what happens. It, I was a recruiter for 36 years. I've interviewed over 10,000 people in my career as a recruiter. So I know what it's to, I've talked to a lot of people to understand what makes them tick as an employee. And I know that they, a lot of them are really loyal to their employer. 
And uh, they're ideological about it. Some of them aren't. Some of them hate their employer. But a lot of them, you know, well, you know, if asked to do something on behalf of the employer and it happens to have a political dimension to it, they're likely going to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, tell the listeners uh, where to find you and where to find your ebook and and all that sort of good stuff. Well, I'm mostly on Substack today, so if, if they're not familiar with Substack, uh, they can go to www.substack.com. They can download the app if they want, or even still for, to find me. All they have to do is put in My Life Lens. So My Life Lens, three words, My Life Lens, and that, that's the name of the bulletin that I publish under. And... Um, They'll find everything I've written to date, and and I'm writing at least two or three weeks now, even though I'm working on this book. The the book itself, What to Do About Climate Change, A Libertarian Proposal, um, the the first version of it is available as a PDF. But as I say, it's, uh, now that I've reworked it and I've restructured it, the new version should be available on Kindle, on Amazon, sometime in the next couple of weeks when I've continued to restructure it and rewrite it the way I've been doing I'm trying to do as much of it as I can, so I was hoping to have it done by now, but it's it turned out to be a much bigger task than I expected it to be. But the way it's working now, if, compared to what you've got, you've got the original copy. Um, the the chapters 6, 7, and 8 are now chapters 1, 2, and 3. So the meat of the proposal is right up front, so you know exactly what you're getting into. And then the back part, all the other chapters are, are moved to the back, because what they are is they're they're a reflection of different ways of looking at the problem, you know, how it came about, who's behind it, uh, what to think about it. You know, it just basically a lot of musings on the topic that I've put together, which I think are worth reading because I, I think I've spent a lot of time thinking about topics like this and my perspective tends to be a little broader than most. So I think people might find that quite interesting as well. So those are the two things that I, I'm not really on Facebook anymore. Um, not very much on Twitter. I do some, but not a lot. Since uh, Elon Musk got back into the picture, I'm going to have a little more confidence in Twitter than I had before, at least the future anyhow. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much where I am these days. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, Gene, and best of luck uh, with the new book. Thanks for having me. It was uh, good, good fun to talk with you. That was Gene Balfour, candidate for the Ontario Libertarian Party. You can find his stuff on Substack. It's called My Life Lens. And if you like the Darcy Giroux podcast, you can subscribe to it also on Substack. <laughs>